Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. (laughs) Well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. For one moment, when Jesus was on the cross, God had to turn his back on what he was seeing, because what man was doing at that moment was so awful and terrible. And yet that wasn't the first time that God had to turn his back because of what his people were doing. It happened once in the Old Testament as well. It happened when his people insisted on worshiping a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai while Moses was up getting the law and the Ten Commandments from God himself. In that moment, God turned around because he could not bear to see the terrible, awful things that men were doing at that moment. We're going to talk more about that in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. Okay, we are, man, we're, we're rounding, rounding third and heading for home here on Acts chapter 7. And uh, we're going to just miss it so much when we're finished with it. I don't know that we'll finish it today, but uh, we're going to, we're round, we're rounding third and heading for home. I didn't say we we're going to make it home, but we'll see. But uh, we're going to start today in uh, chapter seven, and I'm going to go back and start at about 30, verse 33, which picks up uh, some of what we, most of what we talked about last week. And uh, we won't go into that again, but again, this is just to kind of set the context for uh, where we are in Stephen's defense of, you know, he has been called before the Sanhedrin, being accused uh, falsely of blaspheming. And so this is a part of his uh, defense, uh, a part of his speech to say, I'm not guilty of this, of these accusations. And in in doing that, he's kind of started with a a Reader's Digest version of the history of the the Hebrew people. So here we are at verse 33, pick up the story. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, we're talking about Moses here, Take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen, and I like the Greek there better, he says, Uh, seeing I saw, seeing I I saw it, and then I understood it. So seeing I saw the oppression of my people in Egypt. 
I have heard their groaning. And I want you to keep, I hope we get to it, I think we will. I want you to keep in mind this description here. God says, I have heard my people's groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, Moses, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? And uh, Stephen goes on to answer his own question, or the question that the people put to Moses uh, at that time when he went back to Egypt. Who made you a ruler and a judge, they said to him. And Stephen says, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. There's the answer to your question. And the word deliverer there could also be, interestingly, could also be translated as redeemer. So Moses was their deliverer, their redeemer, sent by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. We talked last week a lot about that angel in the burning bush and how we think about the burning bush and we think about the burning bush and God and Moses. But did you know that there was an angel there and that that angel we said last week was most certainly a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ uh, there. So uh, then we go on, it says, uh, verse 36, Moses led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. For 40 years in the desert. Keep that in mind too. Verse 37, this is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Now, by the time we get to Stephen, this is a very well-known prophecy, as it were, that Moses gave. As a matter of fact, of all the things that God did through Moses, of all the things that God revealed to Moses, of all the things that God spoke to Moses about, this, at the time of Stephen, was considered perhaps the greatest thing of all that God revealed to Moses that this prophet, like me, from your own people, that this by this time was, was well known that he was talking about the Messiah. And the fact that God revealed to Moses that the Messiah would come through his people, through him, in this way, that a prophet would be sent, like me, from your own people, that this was a, this was a huge thing that God was saying to Moses for him to tell the people. And we said last week, remember, let's go back to, just to remind you, Acts 3, uh, just real quick, Acts 3, verse 22. Yes. I know, I'm going the wrong, going backwards. <laughs> uh, so, verse, chapter 3, verse 22. For Moses, and this is Peter speaking now. Peter also before the Sanhedrin, also defending himself, also in the middle of a speech. And Peter says, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people, you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. So obviously, this thing that Moses said about the prophet, like me, from among your own people, is clearly meaning the Messiah at this point. Because there's, there, you wouldn't just listen to a prophet and be completely cut off. You, it would be the Messiah who, if you don't listen to, you would be cut off. And we said, I think this, I said last week, I think this connects the dots between Peter and Stephen that Stephen heard Peter say this, that Stephen was in the group, in the crowd, when Peter was making his defense, uh, and that 
through Peter's teaching, I think, Stephen became a believer. And when Stephen is before the Sanhedrin making a defense for Christ, he goes back and recalls what Peter said when he was making a defense for Christ in the same group of people. And he says, well, yeah, Peter used this prophecy from uh, Moses about the Messiah when he defended himself before this group. And I'm in the same situation, and I'm going to use that same argument. And I think that connects the dots between Peter and Stephen, because I think Stephen learned this and how to apply this by hearing Peter do it. Now, one other thing, just real quickly, turn to John 6, just for a moment. John 6. John 6. John 6. Okay. Just to show you that this was a common this was common knowledge, This, what this prophecy meant about uh, the prophet being the Messiah that Moses was talking about. Chapter 6 of John is about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Right? It says in verse 8, Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is the boy with five small, small barley loaves and two small fish. I love the fact that he... He emphasizes small fish. Like if they were large fish, maybe they would have been big enough to feed 5,000. But too small fish, but how far would they go among so many? So Jesus creates this miracle of feeding 5,000 from five small barley loaves and two small fish. So in verse 14 is the wrap-up of that. It says, says in verse 14, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they were referring to this same prophecy that Moses had given to them that this prophet would come into the world from his own people like me, that this would be the Messiah. So when they see this miraculous sign of Jesus feeding 5,000 from such a small small morsels, they say, oh my goodness, this must be the prophet who who was prophesied to come into the world. So they they were equating Jesus as the Messiah here, and this was the people doing it. So this was well recognized that this is what this is talking about. Okay, all that to continue on. Verse 38. Moses was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. Well, there's an angel again. There's an angel where I don't, there's not supposed to be an angel, right? Uh, where is it, what is this there was an angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai? What? If you read what happened on Mount Sinai, there's no mention of an angel. It's God speaking to Moses. So what what is going what is where he So now Stephen brings the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ to the burning bush moment, and now he's bringing an angel into the moment of the law being given to Moses on Mount Sinai. What is that about? Well, he's not the only one. If you want to move forward, I'm moving forward this time, Stan. If you want to move forward to Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, and this is Paul writing, verse 19, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, that being Jesus, until Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, the mediator being Moses. 
So the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. What? Where's that? Okay, let's, and that's not the only place. Let's go move forward to Hebrews. Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, Hebrews 2, verse 2. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, that being the law, and every violation and disobedience received is just punishment. Now, we, now shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So here the writer of Hebrews says, if the message spoken, the law, by angels was binding. The law being spoken by angels. So what? What? I mean, this blows my mind. Because I'm always thinking it's God and Moses. But here, Stephen... Paul and the author of Hebrews say, well, angels were involved. Now, I don't, I don't know how to explain that to you. And scripture isn't giving us specific answers. So we're left to kind of deal with it as best we can. And here's how I deal with it. I think they were all involved in God speaking the law to Moses. I think God spoke to him directly as God the Father. I think God's hand did write the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. But I think it's, it's not unlikely, and now I think it's probably likely as I read this, that probably, remember he's referred to at the burning bush as the angel of the Lord, being the pre-incarnate Christ. I think probably Christ also was talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And yes, I'm open to say maybe there were actually just angels, maybe Maybe Gabriel, or maybe some unknown uh, uh, angel. But Gabriel was especially a, a, an angel that God sent to talk to people. And so I think, why didn't Moses give us specifics? All Moses tells us when he writes uh, in uh, Exodus what happened and what was said, he just says, God said. Well, I think because in Moses, I, it didn't matter. If it was God the Father or pre-incarnate Christ, God the, the, the Son, or a, an angel who's a messenger of God, and to him it was all God. Because Jesus only spoke what God wanted him to speak. And the angels only speak what God wants them to speak. And God only speaks what God wants to speak. So somehow, some way, an angel or some angels were involved with Moses on Mount Sinai. How it happened, I don't know. But Moses didn't deal with it because to Moses, it wasn't important. It all was God giving him the word on Mount Sinai. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because we don't usually think about angels being involved. God handles the whole Bible, though. He handles our lives. He only gives us enough light for the next step. He gives us what he thinks is important. And an awful lot of stuff we just don't get it all. Because you know why? Because we get sidetracked on what's not important. Yeah. All of a sudden, we make what's not important important. Remember how they had to eventually destroy the snake that was that they lifted up in the desert because they started worshiping the snake. Because we go down—I mean, not me personally, but some people go down rabbit holes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? They they want to lift up as it, so God gives us in His Word only what we need to know to kind of keep us on track sometimes. But I think you're right about that. I think, I think if you expect God to show you the end from the beginning, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because you, 
you have to show him you have the faith to take the first step. And then he'll bless you with the second step. But he won't bless you with the second step till you take the second step. And, you know, it's progressive like that. Yeah, and it's probably part of why he, Jesus never healed the same way. Otherwise, we'd start thinking, well, this is the way. We've got the formula. Follow the formula. Like there's a, there's a formula. Yeah. I love that. I like that a lot. Yeah, I love, I love that thought. Make a point about the burning close to the voices. Well, it's possible, as you said, it could be both, because God put the words in the angel's mouth. So God was speaking, but he's the voice of the angel. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I said last week, if you want to say that was an angel and not Jesus, I'm not going to argue with that. Uh, you know, but I think it was pretty clear. But any, in any event, okay. So we're dealing with angels here. Okay, so that's cool. So, verse 39. Oh, chapter... (laughs) Chapter (laughs) 7. Yes. Yeah, sure. There's something really interesting about the way God does stuff that we kind of skimmed over there. Yeah. In 34, he said, I've heard the groaning of my people when I've come down to deliver them. Yeah. Now you go and do it. Right. <laughs> you know, that's God, the way God does it. He, 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 he picks somebody to do it. He says, I'm going to do this, but now uh, you go and do it. Right. No, it's a good point. I and mean, that's, that's why we have to, you know, that's why we have to look at ourselves as the feet of God and the hands of God and the mouth of God because he is using us. So, Okay. Uh, so verse 37 of chapter 7, this, uh, did I say that already? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, verse 39 now, verse 39, verse 39. But, okay, what happens? You see the word but, probably what's going to come after is not going to be good, right? So, so he goes, so he says, Moses got these living words to pass on to us directly from heaven, living words that are, in other words, living words of life, living words of life given to Moses by God himself. But, bad things, our fathers refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected him in their hearts and turned back to Egypt. How is that possible? God gave him living words of life from God. He had delivered them with all of these miraculous things in Egypt. They were there and saw that. They walked through the Red Sea with them. They were there when they did. They saw the Egyptians wiped out as the Red Sea came back. They, they, they got manna from heaven every single day. They got water from a rock. They got pheasants and and some of that was more than they could handle, but you know, but they got, you know, what and 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 they did this for 40 years. And yet here they are, and it says, Our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And the reason I wanted you to remember verse 34 is because it says, God says to them, I have heard your groaning. And have come to, you know, set you free. I've heard your groaning. So obviously, this was an awful place to be. Egypt was a terrible place. They were groaning. I mean, when you're groaning, believe me, 
Now Jan's gonna Jan's gonna say I'm a baby when it comes to paint. Okay. <laughs> I've had three occasions where I've had uh, kidney stones. Oh, well. Has anyone had kidney stones in here before? My mother did. Wow. My husband did. My first husband did. I don't know how to tell you what kind of pain that was. Anyway, I've had to go to the emergency room three times to cause of it. And Jan says I'm a baby sissy whiny girl in the emergency room. I, let me just say this. When I have a kidney stone, I'm groaning, okay? I'm groaning. But but when I get better, <laughs> it's mega, mega groaning. But when I'm feeling better, I don't say, I wish I had a kidney stone again. I, I pray I never have another kidney stone. But here they are, this groaning experience in Egypt, and it says they in their hearts wanted to turn back to Egypt. I mean, what is wrong with people? Back to the community. You have to read the desert, you know. There, there's nothing in the desert. It's a suggestion of the place. There's absolutely nothing. So, someone, said, someone said, I read, they said uh, they wanted to go back to their garlic and onions instead of the manna. <laughs> but Chuck, what you said, is not what I wrote down here in my notes, and that is... They, they turn back to their old life. They turn back to a world that was antagonistic to them, but it was familiar to them. And that's a choice that they had to make. The choice was, do we find comfort in the disobedient familiar, or do we find comfort in the new unfamiliar and at the end of the day if you say I'm going to find comfort in the disobedient familiar because it's familiar because none of us like change you know even sometimes change for the better is hard for us and so we say I'm going to find comfort in the familiar even though it's disobedient but ultimately at the end of that path is the world is Satan, is bad stuff. But if you say, no, I'm going to find comfort instead in the new, even though it's unfamiliar, because at the end of that path is God and good things. But what what they were saying is, you know, this is kind of new to us, it's unfamiliar to us, we're not comfortable here, so let's go back. But even though we would be obedient by living with the Lord, by dwelling with the Lord, by finding our comfort in the Lord, because it's new and unfamiliar, we can't find comfort in it. We want to go back to what we did find familiar, we do find familiar, even though it might not be God's will or God's plan. And sometimes, you know, even Christians have that same issue, is, okay, God wants me to walk with him, God wants me to dwell with him, but it's unfamiliar to me, especially if you're a new Christian. It's unfamiliar to me, and so I'm going to stick with the familiar. Even though it might be disobedient, I'm going to stick with the familiar. So what happens is, and even, even long-time Christians can backslide, you know, and have the same problem. Even though, you know, I know what God wants me to do and how God wants me to be, it's kind of new and kind of unfamiliar, and I'm not finding comfort in it. 
and we go back to old habits or old life or something that is more familiar, even though it's disobedient for a while. And it doesn't make any sense when you look at it objectively. And eventually when, when you, you kind of turn around and, and get back with God, you say, why did I do that? Why did I go down that route? But it's, it's, it's that human nature that we have that's sinful. And Satan always speaking in our ear, always trying to tempt us, always saying, but what about the garlic and the onions? Didn't you like those? It's so familiar to you. So right, it's the, it's the decision to follow the disobedient familiar or the new unfamiliar, and they were choosing the disobedient familiar, even as incredible as it might seem. I agree with you with what you said about Satan being involved, but a lot of times when there's something new out there, there's fear involved. Right. If I fear, fear, if I take that step, what's, what's the next? Well, we said before in this class how sometimes that can be what holds people back from even becoming a believer. Because, oh my goodness, what am I going to have to change in my life? What am I going to have to give up? What, what I, I, it's new, it's, it's, it's frightening, it's unfamiliar to me. So I'm not going to become a Christian because, you know, this is something I'm comfortable with and familiar with, and that's kind of intimidating to me and new. And, so, and we have to help people find that once you take the new, you don't want the old. The new is so much better but you don't know it till you take that step of faith. And then once you have God and the Holy Spirit, that other stuff is just trash and garbage and not important at all. And you don't miss it. Believe me, you don't miss it. But don't forget, they were in the wilderness now. The Lord had not saved them for 400 years. Right. Now they're going to believe, oh, well, will there be manna tomorrow? Will there not be manna tomorrow? I mean, there could have been a gazillion things in their mind. Oh. It's, but it's all, it's this new, this new thing that Moses is telling us about. It's unfamiliar to us. We're not comfortable with it. But, but the thing is, when God moves you out of your comfort zone, it's usually because he has something better for you. And you just have to, you just have, you just have to follow and believe and trust. And that's what they weren't willing to do. They weren't willing to trust God. They were trusting themselves. They were trusting something that was familiar. I if you're in the desert and there's nothing growing, nothing right. living, um, well, you've got nothing but God. Right. You know, that, yeah. talk about trusting God, there's, there is no alternative. Right, exactly. But all of a sudden they're missing, I'd rather be back in Egypt where I was groaning, or would I rather trust Moses being God's spokesperson? And to me, it's, it takes a lot to go back to Egypt, and yet it shows how shallow we can be sometimes. At the end of 40, as for this fellow Moses who let us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened. Right. Yeah. right. And that's the other thing. <laughs> I, I was watching on yeah, PBS on some station last night. It was called the um, something of the Sahara. The, anyway, this was before all this would have happened. Uh, everything dried up. It was amazing. It was a huge sandstorm that came through, totally wasted everything. That used to be very green around there. It was mm. where the pyramids were and everything. It was really lush. Oh, okay. And now this mm. thing came tearing through, and it left nothing but rock. It left nothing but huge 
dunes that would move moan and they would grow. It was a weird place to mm. be out there in that I'm sure it was scary. I'm sure it was, yeah, it you know. Was but all the more reason to re- try to rely on God. Ruth. Verse 40 also says, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And so they wanted to see God work. They wanted to, they had seen God work through Moses. Yeah. And now Moses had disappeared. But they, so they couldn't see. So their faith and trust only went as far as they could see. They wanted something else to go before them. So Moses was Moses was representative of God for them, and they kept their eye on Moses. And then he goes up on Mount Sinai for forty days. I don't understand this. But they didn't see him. That's a good point. They could no longer see him. And so now they say, make us a God we can see. And now that's the way today, though, sometimes when God doesn't answer our prayers or he seems distant, we do the same thing. And and that's when faith and trust and obedience goes in and our, our training in the word kicks in and we do the right thing anyway. So, so we're doing the same thing. We do the same thing that they did. Waiting for God is such a difficult discipline. And sometimes we get impatient ourselves. We don't want to wait for God any longer. It's been long enough. God, you've had your time. Now I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Like Moses did when he killed the Egyptian, right? Okay, we've waited. I'm ready. It's been 40 years. We've waited. Now I'm going to go out and do it because, you know, it's been long enough. But no, that is you no. Know, God wasn't ready yet. He hadn't that had Moses. So, and the same thing with these people. Okay, it's been forty days, and they're impatient, and they've just okay. Well, then we're done with that. We're going to take matters into our own hands. You know, um, Jan and I. We, trust, me. Huh? Go ahead. They put their trust in Moses instead of in God. Yeah. Well, no, Moses was the representative right. of God to them. Right. But Moses was okay, you know, because Moses yeah. was obviously talking right. to God face to face. So, but Jan and I, to, to, like, talk about this 40 day thing uh, and how, oh my goodness, 40 days, forget it. I'm, well, it's just too long. We just, we sometimes we watch these shows like Survivor and different things. Okay. And, and usually they have a time where they have like a family reunion where they bring like someone's wife or husband or brother or sister. And, and, and when they have, they're usually out there like on the island for like 30 days. And 30 days, then they have this reunion with their family. And these people just literally break down and cry and sob. And they can't, oh, my wife, oh, my husband, oh, my whatever, whatever. It's just like, and I'm saying, Jen, I say, it's been 30 days. <laughs> I mean, I don't see my daughter for six months. When I see her, I'm glad to see her, but I don't bawl and break down. And it's like 30, 30 days get real. And I'm saying this about these people, 40 days. I mean, 40 days. <laughs> 40 days is nothing. Well, I'm giving you, this is kind of what happens there. So anyway, Chuck, you had something to say? Well, before you move on, yeah. I want to go back to verse 38. Okay. Uh, I think it's an important point that said that, you know, an uh, angel came and spoke to him in Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. 
And Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, he talks about what benefit is there to be in a Jew. And one of the benefits is that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. The Amen. Of God. The Bible was entrusted, all of the Bible, including Luke, who wrote Luke in pants. A lot right. of people say that Luke was a Gentile. I don't believe it. I think he was a Jew because the oracles were given to the Jews. So it's just an important thing is to go see something about the yeah, they're given to the Jews, but once they shared them with Gentiles, they became ours too. Sure. You know, and then we, then we, we, by virtue of adoption into the family of God, have that same responsibility to do what they did, which is also to share those right, words of God. Them, so, yeah. No, no, not to write the Bible for sure. Okay. So anyway, uh, we're at now what verse um, 40, 39? 39. Let's go to forty. So they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of, up out of Egypt, we don't know what is hap- what's, hap- what's happening to him. This is what we talked about. Been up there 40 days. So verse 41. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands, of what their hands had made. So what you to me is baffling about this is that Aaron did it. Yeah, I know. He could have stood up and been the leader. Bad Aaron. No question. He didn't have much of a backbone, did he? No. Yeah. The word used there for celebration in the original Greek uh, is where we get the word euphoria from, by the way. So the celebration was like this euphoria. You know, the idea of euphoria is you're almost like out of your mind. You know, when you're when you're experiencing euphoria, it's this just this raised level of experience that's almost you know out of you're out of control, almost kind of idea. And that's the kind of celebration they were having for this golden calf. Well, my translation says they reveled. Right. You know, that's what's, we watched the Michigan game last night, and, well, yeah, they won, but it was, it really bothered us. We even watched it this morning, it was too late. And, and the, you know how they go and celebrate? Oh, yeah, I hate that. Oh, I hate that. My hands have made, I'm celebrating in honor of what I did, and it bugs the heck out of me. And, and then, at, in Michigan's game, the guy got a technical because he was gloating and and um, what, what was that word that they used? Ha 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 ha! Look at I I, I did this. Um, there was a word and he, he got 15 yard penalty or something. I said thank goodness. Ruth, I agree with you. I get so tired of that. Uh, you know, back in the day when. I, Back in the day when I played football, you know, you tackled a guy, you made a good play, you got up and went back to the huddle. Yeah. You know, now every single play is like, ooh, ooh, ha, ha. And I'm like, and a lot of times I'm saying, hey, dude, you're losing. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't be able to celebrate if your team is losing. So what difference does it make? 
the evolution how we came. I don't believe it, but you know how we came. We evolved for eight. Well, they're going back. They're being apish in their behavior anyway, that's for sure. But I think I think it's important though, um, to, one thing I want to bring out is that, you know, this still happens today. The world celebrates what their hands have made. The world of unbelievers celebrates what their hands have made. And so they celebrate uh, riches, they celebrate uh, power, they celebrate position, all the things their own hands have made, this is what they worship and celebrate. Whereas as Christians, that's not what we worship and celebrate. We worship and celebrate a God who gives us forgiveness, and a God who gives us peace, and a God who gives us salvation, and a God who gives us joy. So we celebrate and worship the things that God's hand has made, whereas the world celebrates what their hands have made. Now, let me say that for this day, I thought it was so good. It's okay as a Christian to have wealth and to have power and to have position, but you can't worship them. You can't make them your God. They can't become your idol. Someone said, I heard on the radio today, I thought this was, I gotta share this with you guys. You can have all of these things as a Christian but they can't have you. Oh, I thought that was great. You can have these things, but they can't have you. Remember we said, it's not, it's not money that is the problem. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, right? You can have money, but just don't love it. Uh, I used to work for Mrs. Schott, a millionaire, obviously. Uh, I worked for several different people who were millionaires in my lifetime. And uh, not to say any of them felt this way, but I have heard it said uh, in different interviews and different things from different very wealthy people, they'll be asked the question, well, you know, how much money, how much power, how much, how much is enough? How much is enough? And their answer is just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. But see, God gives us contentment, but the world does not. The world gives us discontentment. So, okay, so let's go on. I don't know if I want to start this part. I'll, I'll just because this gets deep. But let me. As a matter of fact, there's one part I do want to. I do want to uh, bring up. So I guess really, really good. So, um, verse uh, 42. Now here we have a but God. Verse 42. But God. Now normally when we have but or however. What comes after it is negative. Usually, when you have but God, usually what comes after that is good. But not here. Here is just the opposite. But God, you think something good's going to happen? No. Stephen says, but God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. What? How bad do you have to be for God to turn away from you? The idea is there that God turned his back on them. I mean, how bad do you have to be? God turned away and gave them over. He said, okay, okay, have at it. You know, what more can I do for you? Gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what was written in the book of prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices? And this is from Amos, by the way. Amos, uh, 
chapter 5. And, and, and Stephen is quoting Amos here. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert of house of Israel? And the answer to that question is no. The time that they were in the wilderness following Moses, they did not practice sacrifices and offerings. So did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert of house of Israel? No. Verse 43, I think there should be a but here. But you have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan. Molech was the god who demanded, if you worship Molech, sacrifice of your children, that they would be put through fire and die. And the star of your god, Rephan, it's, uh, they, this was the... They were worshiping a star, what they thought was a star, and they called it their god, Rephan. It actually wasn't a star, but back then they couldn't tell the difference. It was a planet that they were worshiping. It was Saturn. And Saturn, the planets looked like stars in the sky, although they act somewhat differently. So they had this kind of different star that they worshiped. It was actually the planet Saturn. The idols you made to worship, in other words, they made idols to, they made a shrine to Molech. They made idols to this god, Rephan. They made you made you made them to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Which, when uh, Amos said this, that was prophecy that was going to happen in the future that they would be sent into exile in Babylon. By the time we get here with Stephen, it's history. It actually did happen exactly this way. So what God is saying here is, you were with me for forty years in the desert. You didn't bring me any sacrifices or offerings. But after that, you get into this promised land, and I, I deliver you and bring you there, and do you worship me? No. You worship Molech, your child sacrifices, and the stars, and the moon, and the planets, and and that's what you're worshiping. So this was after they got out of the desert. That part is after, yeah. So I thought it was interesting. I wanted to show you something. Go, turn back to Deuteronomy. This will be, we'll end on this today. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, we're going to start at verse 9. Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. Now, this is God speaking uh, to the people. He says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire. That's Molech. Who practices divination, which is to try to tell the future, or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So here is God telling them what they need to stay away from. Okay, so that's... That's verse 19. 18.9. 9. I'm sorry, 18 verse 9. Okay, now turn over to 2 Kings. Comes after Samuel, after 1 Kings. 2 Kings uh, chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 15. 17.15, 2 Kings. Now this is after after some time, okay? That was God beforehand telling them what not to do. This is afterwards telling, saying what they actually did do. 
Verse 15, they rejected his, his decrees, God's decrees, and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves. That's where that comes from. Uh, they, they went back to the time of Moses and said, let's get that. Uh, by the way, cal cal calves were uh, worshiping in Egypt. That came from Egypt, uh, by the way. So anyway, the idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Every single thing he told them not to do, they did. Every single thing. It's like, you know, you tell your kids, don't open that package. And you walk out of the room, what happens? They open the package, right? But the Israelites knew, don't do these things, and yet they did them. And that's what sent them into exile in Babylon because of their disobedience when it came to these things that God told them not to do. And yet they did them. So we'll stop there. We'll come back. We'll kind of pick up on that. Have a little bit more to say on that next week. But yeah, Chuck. Here to Romans chapter one, which we're talking about in Acts. He yeah. That he, he gave them up. Yes. Romans chapter one gives a sequence of events of what happened after God had given somebody up, or given up a nation. Right. Exactly. Outlined there in detail. Right. And so the 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 I mean the lesson you would think we would learn is. When you do things God tells you not to do, when you're disobedient, it's very clear instruction. Don't be surprised when bad things happen. They won't always, but if they do, don't be surprised because God cannot bless you when you're living in disobedience in the way that he wants to bless you. He just can't do it. Because if he did, it would be almost an implied okay of what you're doing in your disobedience. So. That, yeah, because you know what? We never learn. We're still human, and we still have that awful, evil human nature inside of us that battles. It's a spiritual battle for sure. No, we don't all have that. No, not, not at all. Not at all. You are one of the lucky ones. <laughs> all right, so that's it for me for today. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.